Let's open our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 9. Most of you know that we're studying through the Gospel of Luke, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and our study has brought us to chapter 9, verse 46. We're going to read that through the rest of the chapter this morning. What? I get no respect. <clears throat> then a dispute rose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set by him, set him by him, and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hands to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful that you've given us your word and that we are able to read it and study it openly. We appreciate that, Lord, and, and want to thank you for it. Lord, as we go through these verses, I pray that your Holy Spirit would attend our hearing, that we would have spiritual ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us as Christians and to us as a church, and that our, our inner man would be renewed and refreshed, and that when we leave this place, we'll be a little bit more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, and those who agreed said, amen. The very first dummies book was DOS for Dummies, published back in 1991. The name was something that had been overheard by the publisher. He was in a store when a frustrated consumer holding a computer book said, this book on DOS is impossibly complicated. Don't you have something more comprehensible like a DOS for Dummies? 
It was the beginning of the highly successful series of guides, each of them bearing the slogan, a reference for the rest of us. And I would bet that the majority of you have one or another of the hundreds, perhaps thousands of dummies guides that have been published since then. Now, our text in the Gospel of Luke reads like a dummies guide. It could be called discipleship for dummies. Now, don't be offended. It describes the average person who needs a few simple guidelines in order to better understand a subject matter. We are average Christians, and we need to have a few simple guidelines in order to better understand what it means to follow Jesus as his disciple. In this passage, the Lord gives you six guidelines in two categories, in your manner as a disciple and in what matters to you as a disciple. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, be a disciple and let Jesus redirect your public manner. And number two, be a disciple and let Jesus direct your private matters. First of all, in verses 46 through 56, be a disciple and let Jesus redirect your public manner. The first three episodes that evoke three responses from Jesus have in common certain mistakes the disciples made regarding their public manner. Jesus could have said each time you do not know what manner of spirit you are. The Lord needed to redirect their public manner to bring it into line with what is appropriate for a disciple. What should be your public manner? Well, we'll see three things. A disciple should have a caring manner. A disciple should have a cooperative manner. And a disciple should have a compassionate manner. You should have a caring manner. Verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. One commentator labeled this an appalling argument. And indeed it was. It is best understood, however, if you'll remember that the Jews were constantly thinking about their Messiah who would come and establish the kingdom of God on earth. Now here was Jesus performing the works that only the Jewish Messiah would perform, talking about the kingdom of God, and they were certain from their scriptural training and from years of hope and thoughtfulness that now was the time that the kingdom would be established. No matter how many times Jesus told them that he was about to be crucified, they had their hopes set on the kingdom. Since they were the closest chosen followers, it was obvious to them that they would occupy the cabinet positions in the Jesus administration. It just seemed didn't that, that would make perfect sense. And so Jesus might be saying something about, did he say something about dying again? Forget that. This is the kingdom. And who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man in this kingdom? Who would be the greatest among them? Also, it's not hard to see that a jealousy would have simmered among them because you remember just recently, Peter, John, and James had been invited with, uh, to go with Jesus to be on the mountain. The other nine had to stay behind. And that's always dicey when you, you, know, you split a group like that and it, it seems like you're showing favorites, which of course you're not. But, so they went up on the mountain. They see Jesus glorified. They overhear Moses and Elijah. In the meantime, the other nine are down in the valley floor or on the, on the lowlands and they're having a hard time casting out a demon out of a demon-possessed boy. 
and I'm sure that that made for some stirring conversation around their campfires in terms of who ought to be the greatest. Who is Jesus going to choose? You know, right now President Bush is going through different cabinet members, and well, who, all the news people are going crazy. Who's he going to choose? Here's the top candidates. And so this is just human nature. Uh, and, and so the disciples, thinking that the kingdom was at hand, here Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Only one reason to go to Jerusalem as far as they're concerned. Take over. Hostile or non-hostile takeover, one way or the other. We're going to get rid of Rome and set up the kingdom. And so we better start thinking about who is going to sit on his right hand and on his left and all of that. Now, whatever the reason or reasons, and there are many for the dispute, it was the wrong manner for a disciple. Listen, even if Jesus were going to Jerusalem to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, it still would have been the wrong manner to have as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 47, Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Now Jesus spoke to the heart of their dispute. Greatness is never achieved by an appointment to a position. This is something very different than the way we think in the day-to-day dog-eat-dog world. We, we uh, are trying to climb different ladders, getting a little bit higher than our competition, and, and, and we uh, want to be appointed to that next position or that next promotion. But in God's kingdom, greatness is achieved when you humble yourself to be among others in a manner that is unassuming and not intimidating. When you take the position of a servant. Now, Jesus does something that is really, really profound, very deep. He points to a child or probably held a child on his lap. Now, notice he didn't tell the disciples to be like the child. And this is an error we sometimes make. Certainly, we as disciples maybe want to be childlike, not childish. But he doesn't really say, I want you to be like this child. He says, I want you to receive this little child. As leaders, he's teaching them a lesson. You want to be great, then you should care for others the way a parent cares for his or her child. And that's a beautiful illustration. Parents, good parents, are a great model for ministry. Think of all the things that parents do, and we can only touch on a few of them this morning. They establish a secure household. They provide for the needs of their children without complaining. They see to it that their children are nourished physically and nurtured emotionally and spiritually. They would literally lay down and give their lives for their children. And all the while, their young children especially don't know this or shouldn't know this. Uh, you know, you, you, you want your children to be able to approach you, to enjoy you, to just enjoy life. I don't think there was ever a time when I sat down, you know, when the kids were little and, and you know, maybe they're five and three and say, now, you know, we have some serious family issues to discuss. The cost of homeowner insurance has gone way up. And as a result, I've had to drop our slip and fall policy. And so you cannot play outside the house anymore. All your play is confined to your bedroom. As a matter of fact, only in your bed are you allowed to play because it's soft and cushy and you're probably not going to get hurt. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
See, we don't do things like that, or hopefully we don't. In, in a perfect world, we wouldn't argue in front of our children, and, and I know none of you have ever done that. And, uh, but, you know, and, and maybe you're thinking, well, my parents were weird. But uh, you have an idea of parents that are not weird then, and, uh, because you must have a standard, you know. I mean, everybody checks out, they think, well, you don't know what I went through. Forget that, uh, you know. If you think that you had bad parents, then you know what good parents are. And so we're looking at the ideal situation. Jesus said, you want to be great? Be like the best father you can imagine. Be like the best mother that you know in terms of how you receive and tenderly care and gently love others. It's not a matter of being over them. You know, nobody has a baby and says, yes, I'm now over, Lord. I want that baby painting this afternoon, you know, and stuff. If it can eat food, it can paint. I don't know. You know, it's just, just crazy. You know, we, we really care for our children. Sure, they grow, and then we want them to learn and, and, and all of those kinds of things, but that comes later. And so you understand what Jesus is doing. He says, you guys have exactly the opposite idea of what it means to be great. And those of you who are, have been or are parents, man, it is the hardest work in the world. It is the most difficult thing you can do. Uh, it's easy to run multinational companies compared to being a parent. And, and so Jesus says, you guys, get a hold of this. Now, if you receive others like that, then you're receiving Jesus and his Father. Or in other words, you're acting the same way or in the same manner that Jesus does. After all, didn't Jesus humble himself to be among us in an unassuming manner? Don't we look up to the Father to secure us and provide for us and see to it we are nourished and nurtured? You know, Jesus didn't come into the world and say, okay, I'm here. I'm here and I've got all the power. Man, if you only knew what I could do to you right now. Uh, you know, he didn't do that. In fact, people had a hard time believing that he was God because he was so gentle and tender and approachable. He was the opposite of the kind of God that they had constructed in their own mind. And so this is the illustration that he's giving us, that we would be caring as disciples the way Jesus cares for us, the way parents care for their children. Now next, you should have a cooperative manner. Verse 49, now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. Now, in their travels, the disciples had come across a freelance exorcist. They forbade him because he belonged to another denomination. First service didn't think that was funny either, so. <laughs> Just. It, it's almost like that, though, really. I mean, that's the same idea. Now, Jesus said to them, verse 50, don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. In, there's nothing exclusive about serving God and doing the right thing. Now, Christians, believe it or not, we're all on the same side, even though sometimes you, you can't know it. There are some basic truths that all Christians hold as fundamental. And then there is plenty of room for disagreement on the non-essential issues. Things like the inspiration of Scripture, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, the Trinity the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of all believers to eternal life and all unbelievers to eternal damnation, the return of Jesus Christ. These are essential doctrines that all Christians must believe and agree upon. 
But then there are things like church government and speaking in tongues, uh, styles of music, order of service. These and multitudes and multitudes of others are non-essential issues. A disciple should always seek common ground to cooperate in what is essential. Now, quite honestly, we have a hard time doing that. We really do. Uh, I don't know why, but, but Christians, they, they want to make non-essential issues the essential issues. The Billy Graham Association uh, organization has had a, a good success of coming to various Christian groups and saying, look, there's a few things that we all agree on. Let's agree on them and just cooperate together in evangelism to bring people to Jesus Christ. Uh, and and that, that's worked pretty good over the years. Uh, but a lot of times what happens on a more, say, local level, I'll just share my own experiences here. Uh, a lot of times y- you want to cooperate with other Christian groups and you think, okay, well, we all agree on certain things. And then there's always one or two people that want to take it more towards what they personally believe about something. And, and, and it's like, hey, can we just leave that out? You know, there's some people over here that would disagree with that. And, well, no, that's essential. And, and so then you, you end up having this kind of a schism where we, we really appear that we don't get along. And, in fact, we don't get along because we won't agree to disagree agreeably. And, and that's what we need to do. I'll tell you the truth, and, and you probably already know this. We, our church, and, and I in particular, I guess, forget our church, me. <laughs> I have a reputation, earned but not deserved, for being uncooperative. And here's why. Try as I may, for 20 years I've been here, and I've been trying to cooperate at various times with different groups, and there are some groups that we can cooperate with. I go to these meetings, and, uh, hey, that sounds great, let's do that. And then the next thing you know, somebody comes in and says, and we're also going to add this to it. We want to add, for example, the Brownsville Revival to what we're doing. And now some of you may have never heard about that, but that's down in uh, Florida where they were barking like dogs and laughing in the spirit. Okay. And that has what to do with anything? And, and no, that's essential. That's the move of the spirit right now. We have, to, we have to go there. Let's all go there. I've got your ticket, Gene, right here. You know, it's gonna, and I mean, it's pretty much like that. And so then I say, well, I'm sorry. You know, well, you're sure an uncooperative person. Uh, and there's always something like that. And it's sad because there are things that we want to cooperate on. And, and a lot of people just won't allow it. And so actually, we're very cooperative. It's everyone else that's not cooperative. And I mean that. I mean that. I, I know you think I'm joking, but we try hard to cooperate. And, and there's just people, you know, uh, I, I love it that there's different churches too, by the way. I love that. Because a lot of times people will call and they'll say, um, you know, we went to your church, we really liked parts of it, but we noticed that no one spoke in tongues on Sunday morning. We're concerned about that. And I'll say something like, well, I'm happy about that. And then so, well, wait a minute, brother. And, and you know, it used to be, I'd, I'd get really upset about that, and I'd just say, is that important to you? Yes, it's critical. It's the absolutely most important issue in my life. If I can't go to church and hear somebody speak in tongues, I'm going to die. Well, that's extreme, but that's what they mean. Anyway, and so, so I'll say, listen, there are, there are some good churches. Let me recommend two or three good churches in Hanford where you will just be blessed out of your mind. 
just, I mean, tongues will just be coming towards you, man. I mean, it'd just be fantastic. Or some other issue. They'll call and they say, well, um, do you have a plurality of elders at your church? I said, uh... We don't even want to, but you know, but, uh, and I'll say no, but I tell you, there's a great church in town that does, and you'd be really happy there. Uh, hey, what kind of music are you guys playing? And I'll ask him what kind of music I, I say, hey, I've, I got a church that's just up your alley. And, and you know, I, I think it's fantastic that there are other churches in town that are doing these different things so that everybody can be as happy as possible. And yet we can still agree on the essential things and have fellowship with each other. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think we get embarrassed, we get offended, we get freaked out like we should all be doing the same thing. There was a Twilight Zone episode like that one time. One of my favorite old episodes where this guy, this curmudgeon type guy was just, he, he, he wanted everybody to be like him. And so he woke up the next morning and everybody was him. He played all the characters. And so wherever he went, the people he interfaced with, that was him only, you know, as that other person. By the end of the day, he hated himself. He was glad that the world was a world of diversity and variety. And he realized that he wasn't the center of the universe. And so that's all that we're saying. We need to cooperate. Now, within our church, we need to be cooperative and have a cooperative manner. We have these little areas in our own church where we disagree. Oh, I want to do this, or I want to do that, or why can't we do it this way, or why is this a rule, or whatever. And, and we, we, the, those are resolved over time as we just have a cooperative manner about us and, and seek the Lord. And so it's very important that we cooperate at that level. And then you should have a compassionate manner, verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. In other words, he wanted to go through their area to get to Jerusalem. When the northern kingdom of Israel was overrun by the Assyrian Empire, it was renamed Samaria. Jews held captive, intermarried with their captors. Their offspring were the Samaritans. A great ethnic prejudice existed between the Samaritans and those Jews who considered themselves a pure and undefiled people. So when Jesus and his Jewish disciples wanted to travel through the Samaritan territory, it's no wonder that they weren't welcomed because Jews and Samaritans were at odds with each other. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord... Great opportunity to command fire down from heaven and consume them. After all, that's what Elijah did. And I can almost see them just like wringing their hands, you know, like, can we do that? Huh? Can we? Can we? Now, Elijah did command fire to come down from heaven, but it was upon the false prophets of Baal, the leaders of an idolatrous cult. It wasn't simply because he was passing through and being inconvenienced. Hey, I'm Elijah. I'm on my way to uh, Bakersfield. Can I go through Corcoran? No. All right. You guys have had it then. We're going to flame you. Come on, God. I mean, it's totally different. And so really, it's interesting. This is a total misapplication of Scripture. Now, people say that you can prove or defend anything from Scripture, and really that's not true. 
Just because people say things doesn't mean it proves it or it defends it. How can we remain true to the word and apply it properly? Well, verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Compassion is at the heart of this reply. Jesus could accept the inconvenience because he looked beyond their behavior to their need to believe. In other words, the reason they acted that way is because they needed to be saved. And the way to save people isn't to destroy them. And so Jesus didn't mind being inconvenienced. Knowing the character of God helps you apply the content of Scripture. John and James should have known better than to ask this or to think that Jesus would ever go for a plan like that. That They'd been with Jesus for some time now. They'd seen him do many things. They had never seen him call fire down from heaven to destroy anybody. And yet, even in the presence of Jesus misunderstanding, misapplying, grab a script. Hey, we're upset, basically, that the Samaritans won't let us through. We already have an ethnic prejudice against them. We've hated them our whole lives. Let's find a scripture that justifies killing them. And so Jesus says, hey, why don't we have some compassion? Why don't we look at the character of God and apply scripture appropriately? And and we need to do that. Uh, We shouldn't be looking for scriptures that prove our sinfulness or prove our anger. How many times have many of us said, well, I'm mad, I'm righteously mad. I have a righteous indignation. Well, most of the time you don't. You're just angry and I don't want to admit it. And so we want to not look to Scripture to justify our behavior, but for our behavior to come in line with the character of God. And so these are three quick chapters on your public manner. And then he goes to the next section, be a disciple and let Jesus direct your private matters. The next three episodes, again evoking three responses from Jesus, involve the private affairs of certain followers. You might identify three types of disciples here, the casual disciple, the conflicted disciple, and the conditional disciple. First of all, you can't really be a casual disciple. Verse 57, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now here was Jesus. He's on the way to Jerusalem. In the excitement, one of his followers said he'd go along with him and that he'd go anywhere. We can conclude, however, from Jesus' response that the man didn't understand the level of commitment that was required for a disciple. There would be no going back home for him if he were to follow the Lord. Or at the very least, he would need to live like a stranger and a pilgrim as he continued to journey heavenward. Again, remember, the Jews popularly believed that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom. And this guy may have wanted in on that and thought that it was a golden age for Israel. And Jesus says, well, you can follow me, but from a material standpoint, you're liable to be worse off. You're, you're, you're going to have to leave everything and there may not be anything to go back to. 
Jesus wasn't saying that you can't own a home or that you have to travel around sleeping in public parks. You might have to do that. There are Christians who have had to do that. But the idea here is that you don't really pick and choose when or where or how you are going to serve the Lord. The idea of discipleship is that he chooses for you. And so you can't be casual in your discipleship, only following Jesus because it seems exciting or convenient. And I've seen a lot of guys just on a pastoral level, which is something that I I can talk to a little bit. uh, I've seen guys who've gone out different places to establish a ministry. And and, uh, after years of laboring, it's a good, solid ministry, but it's not the exciting, vibrant ministry that they came from. It's not a church of a thousand or five thousand or ten thousand. And they're discouraged and bummed out because they they were looking for something in particular. Uh, and and so Jesus says, Hey, you want to be my disciple? Uh, I'm not promising you that things are going to be better for you. And you can't be casual about it. You've got to full on get into it and then do what I tell you to do. Secondly, you can't be conflicted as a disciple. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, if this guy's father had recently died, he would not have been on the road, but would have been at the funeral. Most likely, this man's father was not yet dead. This was a Jewish way of saying, my father is elderly or maybe even near death maybe even on his deathbed, and I want to wait until he dies and put those affairs in order, and then I will follow you. Jesus' response sounds a little insensitive, but it had a precedent. A high priest, the Jewish high priest, was required by law to avoid the corpse of even a parent who had died. Pretty high standard. Uh, and, and so if you're, if you're serving as the high priest and one of your parents died, Tough luck. You couldn't go through the normal grieving funeral process because you were a representative of God to the people and, and, and you couldn't come in contact with that dead body. It was just something that went with that territory. And so Jesus is saying discipleship is on a par with the Old Testament priesthood in that respect. It's a full-blown commitment by which you change and rearrange your thinking about everything even human relationships. Now, family is important, don't get me wrong. It's, it's, it's extremely important. But it's not as important as the gospel. We need balance here. Too many ministers have lost their families by putting the ministry ahead of family for the wrong reasons. And that's easy to do. But too many Christians still put family and other priorities and obligations ahead of serving God. Too many Christians put off serving indefinitely. They're always going to serve the Lord after something happens. After my children are raised, after my parents are dead, after I've established myself in my career, after I've gotten to the place of retirement. And we need to be careful about that. I can't tell you what your discipleship is. That's a matter between you and Jesus Christ. And you know that we don't believe that everybody has to become a minister or a missionary. That the greatest service is out in the world, in the community of people, where only you can reach that particular people group of, of individuals that you work with. So, so we're not getting weird here. 
But there are often times when, when the Lord says, you're going to have to take a stand. A lot of times it is in the area of family. People call me all the time with various questions. This is what we believe, but my family believes this. What should I do? Well, whom do you serve? Do you serve the Lord? Then do what the Lord has told you. Yes, but that's going to hurt my, my family's feelings, my extended family, because they're not believers. And I, in the nicest way possible, I say something like, so what? No, I really am nice. I'm a lot more harsh on Sunday mornings than I am in person. That's why people, they, they get me in person and they just b- beat me up, you know, and stuff. And, oh, yeah, do whatever you want. But uh, seriously, a lot of people, it's like, well, my family, my family will say this, or my family, I'll, I'll hurt my father's feelings, or my mother, or my stepbrother, or whatever it is. Okay, that's what Jesus is talking about. Let the dead bury their dead. In the sense of you're called to a higher standard, you're called to obey God, and oftentimes it's by taking that stand that you finally and ultimately show how important Jesus Christ is to you. And and uh, I'm not I'm not proud of it in a, in a sense in any sense, but I've had times when my own father has said to me, he goes, you know, you act as though Christians are more important to you than your own family. And I said, well, Dad, that's not exactly right. It's not more or less important. It's a matter of priorities, and, and I'm serving the Lord. And, and this is what I'm called to do. And I love you, and you need to get saved. You know, I mean, that's really what's going on. And a lot of times we chicken out, and we say, oh, okay, yeah, forget the church, forget God for a while, because I have these priorities over here with my family. And it's, it's believe me, it's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard for all of us, but that's what all Jesus is saying is you want to be a disciple. Ultimately, you take these kinds of stands and it's better in the long run because it releases the gospel into the lives of people. So you can't be conflicted and then you can't be a conditional disciple. And another also said, verse 61, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now this to me is the most interesting request. You're not sure if this guy followed Jesus or not. This exchange will make more sense if you remember an important episode from the Old Testament which I believe Jesus' response is based upon. The prophet Elijah, uh, who we just mentioned a few verses ago regarding the fire from heaven incident, Well, he was in the market for a disciple. He cruised by Elisha while Elisha was out plowing in a field. Elijah walked by him, threw his mantle on him, threw his coat on Elisha, this outer garment that he wore that identified him. It was an indication that he was calling Elisha to follow him and be his disciple. Elisha caught up to him and said, Let me go home and bid farewell to my family. When he went home, he did bid farewell to his family. He did something interesting. He took his oxen and his plowing equipment and he burned them up as a sacrifice. It was a symbolic gesture. He was saying to his family, I will not be returning to ever again plow in the fields. My old life is ended. I'm set on moving forward as Elijah's disciple wherever that leads. 
In other words, my life is not my own and I'm making a clean break with my family. Now, Jesus was telling this first century follower that he too could bid farewell to his family, but it would have to be an Elisha farewell. It would have to be a final farewell. There could be no conditions, only a total surrender to Jesus Christ. Disciples aren't the ones who set the conditions. You can't say you will follow Jesus if or when or after. Jesus directs the private matters of his followers. Now, that doesn't mean that if you follow Jesus, he's immediately going to send you to the place you least want to go, to be surrounded by the people you least like, to do the work you most hate. I I think that's a popular notion that has somehow snuck into the church. Uh, You know, that, okay, I'm I'm finally going to raise my hand and give my life to God and recommit myself to the Lord. And as soon as I walk out, There's going to be somebody who wants me to go to, you know, wherever it is I don't want to go and eat giant scarabs for breakfast, you know. Uh, And and it's not going to be Survivor where I earn a million dollars. I mean, I'm just going to have to tough it and, you know, and I'm going to lose everything and and have my heart ripped out and buried in Africa or something like that. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, and, and sometimes we have to be careful a little bit. You know, in the pulpit we say, let me tell you about uh, Livingston. And, you know, and we give these missionary stories and you're thinking, oh, man, am I glad I'm not called to that? You know, and, and we talk about Jim Elliott and all these guys. And, and you know, that's a total commitment. Uh, and God, you know, that's God could call you to those kinds of things, but probably just wants you to go to work tomorrow and bring a Bible and tell somebody that you're a Christian uh, and, and just in that way be a light and a testimony to him. You can't be casual or conflicted or conditional. The Bible indicates that God wants your joy to be full and that he wants to be completing you and bringing you to perfection and giving you the desires of your heart that will be most meaningful and most fulfilling. This world looks upon committed Christians as if we were a bunch of dummies. Well, to quote another successful ad campaign, you can learn a lot from a dummy. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. But anyway, no, cut it out. There's always, there's always people who are like, yeah, I know what he's talking about. And others are like, what? Ad campaign? I don't know what he's talking about, honey. Do you know what he's talking about? Uh, maybe. But anyway, it's the crash dummies. Yeah, right? I love those guys. The crash dummies, they crash for you so you don't have to crash. You can learn a lot from a dummy. Anyway... And you know what? The people that you are around, that, that, are around, that you are among, that are not Christians, and even some that are Christians, they can learn a lot from you if you'll just be a, a, a dummy, a, a, a dummy who desires to be a disciple. And, and you know what? Discipleship, as we've seen this morning, discipleship is not complicated. Think of all, and, and I'm not putting anything down, but think of all the discipleship programs that are out there. Uh, books on discipleship, volume after volume on discipleship, you know, volume 10 and, and all of these chapter after chapter. In just a few verses, Jesus gives six lessons. Bam, bam, bam. That's three. Pow, pow, pow. That's six. Anyway, I mean, just he comes right at you and says, you want to know what a disciple does? 
publicly, you want to know how a a disciple orders his life privately, this is it. There is nothing complicated about anything we talked about this morning. It's very simple. It is, however, costly. But I think you and I look at the cost as an investment in the future that will eventually bring great reward. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you call us to follow you. Lord, you don't really need followers. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Son of God, thrice holy, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, poised to return to earth to rule and reign. And yet you still call upon men and women to follow you and to represent you. And you don't do it, Lord, to destroy life, but to save life, ours and the ones that we contact. And you do it that our joy might be full and that the desires of our hearts would be granted and that our lives would be meaningful and purposeful and complete. We complain a little bit, Lord, because we don't see along the way how each episode is going to contribute to the completing of that good work. In fact, sometimes it doesn't even seem like a good work. It seems like a work that's against us. But we, by faith, Lord, press on knowing that in the end, you will bring forth from our lives a sweet aroma of sacrifice and praise. And so, Lord, I pray that we would commit ourselves this morning, this day, afresh and anew, to discipleship, to giving over the direction of our life to you. Whatever changes that need to be made, whatever decisions that need to be uh, redetermined, Lord, we, we just want to give that to you. You deserve no less, and we long for every good thing that you have for us. So, Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We do it in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Let's stand together. As the service ends, we've got some guys that will be up front. They'd love to pray with you or pray for you. Make your way down front and let them know what's going on in your life. Love to see you here tonight, uh, 6 o'clock. Short devotion, about 10 minutes. Communion with one another. Uh, Time of worship, and then we open it up for congregational prayer. very different, very moving, very meaningful, and and so uh, come on out and join us for that. If not, or if so, God bless you and keep you as you seek to serve Him. Amen.
You can't. 